everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Shift. I'm Shay Candish, New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's General Secretary and the host of this show. Since it's Nurse Practitioner Week this week, I'm joined by Lorna Scott. Lorna's a nurse practitioner in women's health and an NSWNMA counsellor. She's also a proud Scotswoman. Lorna moved to Australia from Scotland in the 80s for, as she puts it, the nicer weather. But it wasn't long before Lorna had thrown herself into the world of Australian nursing. In 1987, Lorna became one of the first women's health nurses in Australia and in the early 90s was part of a groundbreaking nurse practitioner pilot. 33 years on, Lorna's still loving working as a nurse practitioner and women's health nurse. She has some hilarious stories from her inspiring career to share with us today. Welcome to the show, Lorna. Thanks, she. It's lovely to have you. It's great for all of the listeners to be able to hear from not only one of our councillors, but our newly elected vice president as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to really digging into this chat today. Uh, can you start off by telling us a bit about what got you into nursing in the first place and a bit about your early career? All right. Um, look, I was one of these kids that kind of went through school a bit earlier maybe than I should have. So I had finished like the equivalent of uh, what was in Scotland was fifth year, like the final end of high school by the time I was 16. And at 16, I thought, oh, what the hell do you do? So I worked in a bank for a couple of years, which wasn't my best idea. <laughs> uh, and I always like had to wait until I was 18 before I could become a nurse. So I'd applied for a couple of different places for nursing and started at what was classified as a small country hospital a called Law Hospital next to Kirluk in Lanarkshire. And saying that, it had about 680 beds. Wow. That was classified as being a fairly wee place. It was a hospital that was built during the war for mm-hmm. returned war soldiers and it was meant to be temporary. So when I was there in the 80s, it was still temporary, but it has now been knocked down. It was quite notorious for if the weather was bad, you get snowed in. And there had been occasions when you went to work and you didn't go home for three days because the hospital was snowed in and wow. you had to wait for the roads to get cleared. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. And when you say it was temporary, was it temporary in structure as well? Or like, was it a proper fixed building? Like oh, for a like hospital proper, of 600 proper, beds? Proper fixed building. It was all done in little blocks like the Nightingale Ward. You had yeah. a big long corridor with all the wards going off the corridors. Uh, with quite some distance between some of them. So it was, we had medical, medical block, surgical block, orthopedic block, ED was kind of stuck in the middle, Mm. um, ENT, geriatrics, and yeah. So it was Mm. a fantastic experience for general nursing Mm. uh, because you get a really good experience working everywhere. Mm. And did you love it? You know, when you started, did you feel like you'd found found your your place? Um, I've got to admit, apart from theatres, which I really couldn't stand, most of it I really enjoyed, but the two areas that I really loved most was uh, working in, like, the gynae wards, the experience you had in obstetrics and community. Mm. So after finishing general nursing, I only worked as a general nurse, I think, for about two months, and then started midwifery at Rotten Row in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And that experience there was absolutely fantastic. It was a hospital for prostitutes and destitute women that was built, oh God, when I was there, it celebrated been 150 years old. Wow. It was really weird coming to Australia, who was celebrating 200 years old. (laughs) 
I can imagine. Yeah. Now I'm just going to go back. That hospital for prostitutes and destitute women was that feels quite progressive, uh, you know, a, a progressive oh, concept. Was there stigma in the community for that kind of um, group of women? Was it done in no, a way was, to support them? Like, how, how did that all come no, about? It was, a, it was really interesting uh, history. So, like, in Scotland, maternity hospitals were always totally separate from general hospitals. Mm-hmm. So Rotten Row, if I remember right, was about 150-bed maternity hospital, uh, basically covered in like the east end of Glasgow, but it was also one of the main tertiary referral services, like from the islands, uh, like if there was any emergencies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, had two floor NICU unit and was a really brilliant experience, a great place to work. I will admit it was in the top of a hill with a one in 10 gradient. We had an incredibly low induction rate, but that was somewhat to do with the fact that we used to send women down to the Indian restaurant at the bottom of the road the night before inductions. <laughs> and by the time they walked back up the hill, invariably they went into labour. So I think that was why the induction rate was low. Oh, good plan. We'll have to yep. think about where we put new hospitals on top of yeah, the yeah. hill. <laughs> yep. but, uh, no, Rotten Rot- Row really was a wonderful experience for doing midwifery training. And so you'd obviously found your thing in terms of women's health and obstetrics. And and so talk to me about that. Once you'd sort of made the decision to become a midwife and to really kind of hone in on women's health and women's issues particularly, how did that come about? Well, um, my initial plan was to become a health visitor. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then I thought I really need some more experience probably somewhere else. My sister and brother-in-law had been in Australia for a couple of years, and they went, oh, why don't you come out here for a year? And at that point, one of my girlfriends had come out to Australia for a year, nursing-wise, and then couldn't get a visa to get back in the country again. So Ah. she said, whatever you do, take out permanent residency, just in case you like it. So I did. That took about a year to get. Uh, Then when I come over here, I started working in maternity at Maitland Hospital, and to be quite honest, I hated it. <laughs> From a career that I loved, I was used to doing like total patient care. You get given your patients, you looked after them, you delivered them, you looked after them uh, postnatally. And here it was like, oh yeah, you can look after somebody during labour and then hands off, the doctor will come in and do the delivery. Mm. So going back to the 80s, I thought, oh, this is not what I want to do. Mm. Um, and then there was this position that I noticed in the notice board that said women's health nurse. Uh, working in the community and I looked at it and I went that's the job for me so I applied for it Uh, they told me I was too young Uh, went for that was when I applied for the interview Uh, went for the interview and they gave me the job oh good (laughs) so I then got deported to Sydney Uh, so like with, with women's health nurses it was a really interesting concept that there was a big study done in the I think it was about 84 85 as to why women's health was so inadequate in New South Wales. And from the report that came out in 1986, one of the recommendations was there'd be a new creation of nurse, that mm-hmm. being the women's health nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. Now, known now what I know industrially, it really was quite amazing because we were actually automatically paid as a year ARN. That ah. was a starting wage as a yeah, women's right. health nurse. To recognise the skills that were needed yep. in the role. In the role. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of the first positions like that we were working totally independently. Mm-hmm. So there was no medical backup. Um, 
yeah, and we were doing things that doctors really did not like nurses doing, like pap smears. I mean, that had been unheard of. Like, how dare a nurse put a speculum in a woman's vagina? Whereas nowadays, it's just part of normal practice. But back mm. in the 80s, it was really, really quite controversial, the full position. Uh, so after we'd done the training, which was run by the family planning and the College of Nursing, and it was, you'd sit in lectures all day and then you'd go to the family planning clinics at night, like to get the skills. Um, certainly I can remember then they had a lot of pseudo clients with women who they would pay for us to come in and examine. So they could give us really good feedback about what our examination techniques were, were like. The pelvic floor checks were certainly interesting because we'd done them in each other in the course. Uh, <laughs> great way for you to make sure your pelvic floor was perfect when all your colleagues were going to be checking yours. Oh, gosh. Um, so the, the full course was a really uh, quite wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and like even like when you look at the first cohort, fantastic nurse woman, uh, Helen Wilmore. And although Helen's now retired, she still attends her... Australian Women's Health Nurse Association meetings on a regular basis. Yeah, so it's brilliant right. that we've still got that contact uh, yeah. with fantastic nurses like Helen. Uh, we then get told to go and survey our areas. So I was given what was classified as the Lower and Upper Hunter, which was basically from the Hexham Bridge just outside Newcastle up to Willow Tree and out to Ulan and out to Stroud Road at Dungog. Now, coming from Scotland, I had never driven that far in my entire bloody life. I nearly yeah. died of shock <laughs> with the, the length that you to travel. So it was like, initially, it was going around talking to as many women's groups as we can, trying to find out what was the interest, what was needed uh, with that really interesting initial community development. I can always remember up in Denman, we'd done like a one-off education session. So it was a full day covering a bit of everything with women's health. At the end of the day, they said, can you run a clinic for us? And we went, yep. And I had 174 women try to book into that one Oh clinic. my gosh. So the demand for the service immediately was just And colossal. what sort of services were you offering in the clinic? Like Look, what were people they, desperate for? What they were desperate for was a lot of it was information. So it was looking at your basic things like your pap smears, your breast checks, your sexual health checks, information about menopause, PMS. At that point in time, things like uh, PCOS, your polycystic ovarian syndrome, didn't mm. really exist. But yeah. PMS was a huge problem. And again, like other things like with heavy periods, vaginal problems, basically women were just desperate to soak up any information that they could get on anything with women's health. So initially, I'll, this is quite a good story about Denman. Denman, we used to, well, I used to run the clinic in the nurses' home there, which was fine. And one day it was getting a bit noisy. And I thought, I don't know what's going on here. And then the electricity get cut off. And I went out and said, there's no electricity. And they went, yeah, that's right, love. And the guy, it was an old weatherboard building, punched a hole through the wind, like the wall, and handed me an extension lead. And I thought, okay, kept going. Then the water got cut off, and I'm thinking, this is a bit weird. And I went out and I went, there's no water. And I went, oh, here's an urn, love. So they gave me an urn and a couple of buckets of water, and I kept doing the clinic. And I'm thinking, it's really getting noisy in here. <laughs> kept going. Then to the day I went out and went, where the bloody hell's the back of the building? They went, oh, they're trying to, we want a new helipad there, but they're trying to put a heritage order on the nurse's home. So we'll have to demolish it by tomorrow. 
And I said, well, you could have told me. And they went, yeah, but we'd nowhere else to put you. So we just thought you seemed okay in there. So we just kept going. Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> health and safety was certainly something we ignored back in those days. <laughs> uh, after that, because there was nowhere to run the clinic, there was a nursing home next to it. And this wonderful old guy called Charlie would give me his bedroom for the day. <laughs> uh, so Charlie used to get on. He said he had really bad. It was a lovely old man. And he had really bad osteoporosis. Uh, and so did his horse. And he just just jump in the back of the horse and ride off into the distance. And I would use <laughs> his bedroom. <laughs> Which was set oh. up beautifully as a women's health clinic. I mean, nowadays, what we used to do back then would not be allowed. Of course. Uh, the clinics were basically would run wherever we could. So I have run clinics in sheep shearing sheds, tennis court change rooms, uh, post office. The post office was interesting. Uh, and an old bank building up in Patterson where the only place we had privacy because of the windows was in the vault. Oh. So we had the bed in the vault. <laughs> and I lived in fear. I thought, God, what happens if this big door shuts? I'm stuffed. Or what happens <laughs> if they think that you've been a bit, you know, taken yeah. a bit of taken a bit of the money in the vault? Goodness. So yeah, it was always really exciting, really interesting. And it was just so fantastic to provide a service for women that the response was so good um and that was happening everywhere mm. so initially as i said we're at well i was running clinics like at maitland dungog uh, meriwal murrurundi denman scone singleton and then 1991 we finally got another women's health position and carolyn inc started in upper hunter so then i had a smaller area to cover which was fantastic Mm. And so obviously as sort of a new service in women's health, you were sort of at the forefront there, but then you were also at the forefront of the nurse, one of the first nurse practitioner pilots yep. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Talk to me a bit about how that came about and what your experience was. Right, that, that came about, we actually, by that point in time, I had a small women's health team covering, which was then Hunter, because it wasn't part of New England back then. So we had myself, uh, Grace Kong, Grace was an Aboriginal uh, women's health nurse who was absolutely inspirational. Uh, Grace was great. Uh, there was Dana Peterkin so, and myself. So there was the three of us and then Carolyn came in and they were looking at, okay, how would the like nurse practitioner thing go looking at, at, at primary health care? Because most of the NP ones who were looking at were like an ED and other like hospital-based areas. Mm. So what we actually done was run trials working in, out of GP practices. So I worked out of the area of Dungog and I don't think the GPs were terribly fond of having me in the practice, but by the end of it, it worked incredibly well. Uh, Did and you actually, convince them? Oh yeah, at the end <laughs> of it, it was like, just write me a script for this, this and this. And it, <laughs> it was fantastic because we could. one of the huge frustrating things with working in women's health is you knew what drugs women were needed like for contraception and treatment for like chlamydia but we couldn't do anything yeah. so you'd have to refer them back to their GP oh. and then they'd be waiting weeks before they could get in and invariably people would be back pregnant again you're thinking this is just not good enough yeah so with that trial you could just kind of basically lift the phone and go and it was a um, Bill Hawley up at Dungog uh, and Bill was fantastic it was just can you write me a script for this what do you want and it worked incredibly well Mm. Uh, now after that it took like another 10 years before the nurse practitioner uh, positions and authorizations actually happened mm. uh, so 
AG finally got authorised, put in, I think it was about the April, and got authorised in the July mm. uh, 2001. And that was an interesting experience in itself, because in those days you get put in front of a panel of uh, like professors, nursing, pharmacists, radiologists, and somebody from the board, and they basically gave you a question, gave you 10 minutes to read it, and then you went in. And I got my question, and I thought they've got to be, well, basically taking the piss, because it was on an uncontrollable male diabetic with a leg ulcer <laughs> who had a wife with chronic thrush, a daughter with Down syndrome who wasn't coping with menstruating, and a drug alcohol, um, son that was a drug addict. Oh, and I gosh. thought, I can deal with everything, but I've got no bloody idea about wound care. But it was just like, it was putting in the processes of this is what I would do. This is where right. I would do for the research. This is where I would look to get the correct evidence. Mm-hmm. I was fine with treating the, the daughter, the wife and the son. They were nice and easy for me, but the wound yes. care, I thought, oh, <laughs> So needless to say... Well, if think, the only thing you failed on is the wound care out oh, the of that complex care. situation, totally. I think you were doing all right. Uh, <laughs> and I basically, I think I cried the full way home thinking, well, I've stuffed that up, let's reapply <laughs> and get back into it again. So I was quite shocked when I actually got authorised and mm. when asked them for feedback, they said, with the treatment with the daughter with Down syndrome, you were actually using treatments that we had no idea what you were talking about. Wow. So we had to go and research that and went, Oh, she's actually correct. Oh, good. <laughs> and that was initially when things like Implanon were coming out, but weren't very well known at that yeah, stage. Yeah, right. Wow. And so talk to me about, you know, having been one of the first nurse practitioners, what was the experience like from the medical community? You know, you sort of touched on it earlier when you were working in their clinics. And how did you make the role sort of your own and make it effective? Right. Well, one of the things was... Um, like, I will admit, because I've been working in the community for a long time, most of the GPs, like, initially, I have to admit, one area had in the local paper, do not see this woman, you will be endangering yourself, <gasps> your health. That was going back, like, to the 80s. So I've still got my little kind of collection of how dangerous I was to society. <laughs> but by, like, the 2000s, GPs knew me. We were getting lots of GP referrals as well as self-referrals. Yes. Um the local hospital, like with looking at gynae support, the staff turnover was quite high in those days. Mm. So you'd get one that was really supportive. They would leave you to start from scratch with another oh. one. And certainly I will admit the biggest hassles we got were from radiology and pharmacists. Wow. And it was like, how dare a nurse order radiology and is for a nurse ordering drugs? Wow. Yes, that was a problem. The pathologists were brilliant. They yes. were so supportive. Uh, but radiology was really one of the big stumbling blocks when we got mm-hmm. round to the guidelines. Mm-hmm. So although I was authorised in 2001, mm-hmm. it took till 2003 to get a position. Yeah. Uh, and then we got the guidelines and my initial scope of practice, I think, was about 160 pages. Wow. Whereas now it's about 30. So uh-huh. we had to put in everything in great detail. Uh, but certainly from community health, we had fantastic support in the community and from from community health mm-hmm. as well mm. again like with everything in nursing it takes 10 years so it took that further 10 years before we could actually get access to uh, the PBS which was only then allowed for those of us in the community mm-hmm. which again I thought by now it would have improved 
but a lot of the drugs that you'd want to prescribe, we still have to get a doctor to prescribe them before we can prescribe them, wow. which the biggest hassle of that is, is for things like your drugs for menopause, mm. which drive me up the wall. Mm. Um, wow. And especially, you know, given it's your bread and butter and what you do every day. Yep. Uh, that's a real that must uh-huh. be a real it's, frustration it's really frustrating you can write private scripts and most of the hormone like menopausal hormone therapy is nowadays in private scripts mm-hmm. but for ordering like your transdermal patches we have to get a gp to write the first script and then we do it under either a shared care or continuing therapy order after right that. wow and so talk to me now about you know the benefits of having nurse practitioners particularly in areas like women's health and where you think uh you know the future of nurse practitioner nurse practitioner roles and community care could be oh look i see the scope and the potential there is absolutely enormous but the thing is is we just can't get the positions funded mm. uh, I mean you can see so many areas like with wound care like with diabetes like with diabetes uh, like with hospital in the home like we've got a really good hospital in the home team that have got no medical governance mm. and having a nurse practitioner in that team would be absolutely wonderful we've been going on about this for years but mm. keep getting told there's no funding mm. uh, certainly you do find that the scope of practice does keep changing with mm-hmm. what you're actually doing uh, so often people when they say as a women's health nurse what do you do and people go oh you do breast checks and pap smears and I think, yeah okay uh, you don't do that very often it's more like looking at the like certainly menopause is a huge issue so is uh, PCOS so is endometriosis contraception and vulval problems and a lot of the vulval problems is caused by allergies to products mm. so allergies to things like toilet paper and shower gel is really big uh, and people often think of oh, get thrush consistently use like your canestin creams and you're going it's not thrush it's like yeah. you've got really bad eczema uh, wow. due to something so uh, people have a vulval itch get it checked don't do that assumption it's thrush so it's like that real holistic care again if you're looking at uh, things like with menopause and PCOS, it's realizing that these women are then at risk from cardiovascular disease down the mm. track. Mm. So it's doing that cardiovascular assessment on them. Mm. Uh, and often people think, why are you ordering blood pressure medication and statins? I'm going, well, it's part of the role to look at that preventative stuff for in the future as well. And interestingly, you know, this is clearly not my area of expertise, but my understanding is that a lot of the things you've just spoken about, women often express frustration at having, um, you know, serious misdiagnosis around a lot of those areas as well. So having uh, roles like yours where you really get to hone in really specifically on women's health issues must really assist a lot of your patients in having someone that listens and also getting a diagnosis that they may have been searching for for some time. And I think as well, because like we're very open with the questions that we ask, like when you're looking at things like specifically, like for a lot of women after menopause, when they do experience vaginal atrophy, like how often are they been asked, like, do you find sex painful? Mm. Because people just think, oh God, I'm not going to mention that. Whereas mm. I, that's one of my standard questions. My jazz that for everybody of every, every age. Uh, and often people aren't expecting that, but it mm. gives them that permission to go, yeah, I do have a problem. Mm. Uh, so we can discuss it. Again, like with domestic violence, we're asking questions in domestic violence. And you rarely get somebody saying first off, yeah, that's happening for me. But yeah. often if they're back for a couple of visits later, 
then that's often when they're saying, look, this is something I really need some help on. And yeah. I'm at the stage where I need the help and I know that we can come to the service for to get pointed in the right direction for it. Mm. Again, like with a lot of sexual assault and a past sexual, sexual abuse, we're often the first point of contact there. And certainly in the last few years, we're finding that we're seeing a lot more transgender clients as well, which mm. is certainly a community that, um, like I think, yeah, they have really, really big difficulties with getting people that are sympathetic to their needs. Absolutely. And often with that one, like oh, I was a couple of months ago, a mum had brought in her young 13 year old and said they want to go in the pill. So when you're exploring like why you want to go in the pill, is it because of your periods? Is it sexually been sexually active and this kid went I'm a boy and I don't want to have periods anymore yeah uh, and they had seen their GP who referred them off to a psychologist who unfortunately told them that was disgusting and they did not deal with those things and they'd been oh. waiting months for that appointment so then it was really good that we could say okay there is actually a specific service uh, for transgender Ruth at Maple House let's get the referrals and progress which unfortunately their GP had to do but we managed after speaking with the GP saying look this is what we need to happen this yeah. is the blood test we need and then for you to make the referral mm. so they're now in the system and being seen which is really good to see absolutely and you can see you know vulnerable populations like trans or like you know women experiencing domestic violence um falling through the cracks I guess yeah. um without the services that you uh -huh. offer which and you know talks to how important it is I think as well because we don't charge the mm. fact that it's a free service is another thing uh, I think a lot of the time why we're so busy mm. uh, because like nowadays we're finding that the cost factor of things is like when you're looking at medications or whether it be like conventional prescribed medications or natural therapies or lifestyle changes it's the cost of it is prohibited for a lot of people and like if you're looking at the pill you think okay this one might be better for you but we know you can't afford it mm. so we get that's achievable for you to use and also what's affordable yeah becoming a bigger issue yeah absolutely especially at the moment I would imagine with you know the pressures of cost of living really um you know making life more challenging for some people now talk to me about um obviously in the U.S. you know there's been a fairly historic decision um come down earlier this year with the Roe versus Wade case mm -hmm. um in relation to women's health and women uh being able to access abortion mm -hmm. um Coming from the experience that you come from, talk to me about what your take is and whether or not you think there's any kind of transfer of um, some of that thinking here in Australia or if there's anything that we should be thinking about in relation to this. Look, I think Australia, the fact that it's been legalised in so many states has been a huge improvement. Uh, Western Australia is still, yeah, what we say, work in motion at the moment. Uh, South Australia has just had a lot of improvements. I think one of the biggest things I've been aware of is since we've had easier access to medical terminations, a lot of the surgical termination services have actually withdrawn the services just purely for medical. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, getting access to medical terminations is not as easy as what we thought it could be. So as nurse practitioners, we cannot prescribe then to a step because when it went through uh, in Australia, it was only for medical practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, and I would love to see that being, getting changed. Mm -hmm. Whether it might do in the future, I'm not sure. Um, 
but for women to get access to it is actually quite difficult. You've got a lot of the online services where you can actually order the medication, but it's then finding a pharmacist that's actually done the training to dispense it can be a problem as well. Yeah, right. Now, if you're in Queensland, the children by choice up there have got this fantastic system. You put in your postcode, it tells you the GPs who can prescribe it and pharmacists who can dispense it. Ah. In New South Wales, like we're talking with GPs, I'm going like, who's prescribing it? And they will all say to you, we're not telling you, Lorna, because you will refer people to us and we're too busy and we can't take patients on from other practices. Ah. So there's a couple that we know that can prescribe it and we try not to abuse them too much. <laughs> uh, again, we've got like our local hospitals do not prescribe it. Yeah. We've got to try and get clients down to the John Hunter but unfortunately, they've only got two doctors down there that can prescribe it. If they're not on in those clinic days, again, that can sometimes lead to delay and mm. women getting access to it. Uh, there's also the cost factor. So sometimes with clients you're having to, especially if they're in Centrelink, uh, like trying to negotiate uh, loans from Centrelink to pay for it, which mm. you're thinking, they're saying to you, I cannot afford another kid, but I also can't afford a termination. Oh, that's just uh, heartbreaking. Which can get quite heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, but and if it, you look at countries like Ireland, I mean, Ireland, you couldn't get a termination, whereas now the M2 step is in, like every GP's like top drawer for them wow. to dispense immediately. If you go to Sweden, it's the midwives that dispense it. Mm. So it's not something you go to a doctor for. And it would just be fantastic if we could see things changing in Australia where mm. it was easier to get access to it at an affordable cost. Mm. So lots of work to do in that space by the sounds of it. I think there is a current Senate inquiry into reproductive health in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'll be optimistic that with the current government and the submissions that have went into from, from like Women's Health Nurse Association and especially the submission that went in from Sphere, uh, and a lot of other organisations that the government will take heed of this and get the reproductive field for women improved Australia-wide. Mm. Mm. I'm being optimistic, it'll change. Well, look, I think we have to be optimistic in this work, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Um, but you're right, given we've got a, you know, much more considered government in relation to gendered issues, um, hopefully we can shift the dial on these things. Yeah. We'll mm. be optimistic. Yep. Definitely. Is there anything else that you want to cover that we haven't covered today, Lorna? Uh, I just think for nurses to always remember women's health. It's looking at holistically at women. And if you're interested, uh, let the Australian Women's Health Nurses Association know. They're a great resource. Uh, because often it, it's like a position that can be quite isolating and it's making sure that you've got your networks. And that is a brilliant network that we have uh, in Australia. Um, it is a fantastic thing to look for if nurses are interested in looking at being a nurse practitioner. It is a fantastic position. It really is so fulfilling to be able to do that holistic and complete patient care. Mm, absolutely. Sounds like it's very rewarding work. No, it's like it's you never know from one day to the next what the hell you're going to experience. <laughs> um, look. You certainly have lots of war stories. Um, I think it keeps it pretty pretty fresh and interesting, doesn't it? Well, I always can remember our talk I'd done. I can't remember what conference it was. I think we started off intending calling it the things I find in vaginas, which we then <laughs> thought is probably a bit inappropriate. So we changed it to the art of the deadpan expression. And that is one thing they never, ever teach you in nursing. 
is to when you're desperate to burst out laughing or you get a situation where you're thinking this is bloody unbelievable and you have to keep that deadpan expression with mm, really <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember once I said to a patient it's okay there's nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard before and sure enough they did <laughs> yep uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah but you cannot always expect the unexpected because you That's never right. know what's going to happen Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Lorna. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, I really have appreciated it and hearing more uh, wonderful stories from, you know, kind of that uh, really niche area of women's health um, has been really fascinating. So I think the listeners will really enjoy it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Shay. We'll be right back after a quick word about the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's continuing professional education program. Did you know the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association has a new online CPD portal? With over 200 free online CPD courses across a wide range of nursing and midwifery topics, plus the ability to track your learning, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a New South Wales NMA member, just log in to the member portal, Member Central, to access this program. And if you're not yet a member, make sure you join today. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I wish you all a safe and happy holiday season and look forward to bringing you more stories from the world of nursing and midwifery in the new year. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.